Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name is Neil Headley. Bit of a mea culpa to begin episode 14. If you're looking for high-intensity sleep information, you're not going to find it in this episode. In fact, we don't really get into a conversation that's strictly about sleep until about four minutes before this week's show ends. And that chat isn't even with one of our two main guests. Sleep does come up, albeit tangentially, with both of our first two guests because of an episode called The Conversation from their TV series that aired on December the 16th, 1997. Now, in that episode of Mad About You, the main characters, Jamie and Paul Buckman, are agonizing over whether to let their newborn cry it out. And we'll get into that. But fear not, my sleep-obsessed friends, because we do explore crying it out and your baby's crying it out right at the end of the show with Dr. Linnell Schneeberg, professor at Yale and director of the sleep clinic at Connecticut Children's Medical Center, also the author of the new book, Become Your Child's Sleep Coach. So we're going to talk to Dr. Schneeberg about that with a clip from an episode that ran uh, on the Snooze Button podcast a couple months ago. Speaking of books... On next week's show, we're going to be giving you the chance to win two different books, both from guests we've had before on the snooze button. One is called The Nocturnal Brain by Dr. Guy Leschziner, and it deals with the fascinating stuff that we can learn about the brain from some of the more bizarre things that people do when they're asleep, like the story of the lady who was riding her motorcycle in her sleep. The other book you can win on next week's show is called Yoga for the Inflexible Male. It's written by Yoga Matt, pseudonym for our friend Roy Parvin. Great book, fun stuff, and we'll give you a chance to win that and Dr. Guy Leschziner's book. Both of those coming up on next week's show. In the meantime, very excited uh, for two actors that I am a huge fan of their work individually and a huge fan, of course, of their sitcom Mad About You, which is now back on the air in certain markets in the United States uh, and about to premiere in Canada in January. It's Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt spoke to both of them a day apart and individually. So we'll get to the Helen Hunt interview in just a couple minutes. But first, let's get going with Paul Reiser. Uh, you are periodically back on the road doing stand-up, aren't you? Yes, yes, periodically. Not as much as I'd like to do. I, I'd love to do a lot more, but I keep getting um, distracted with uh, these uh, other lovely Projects. Well, and the distractions are good. Now, I, I want to find out because I, I mean, I did stand up for, it was eight excruciating years, um, excruciating mostly for the crowd. Uh-huh. And, and I came back to it after about 15 or 20 years away, which is the same thing that you did. I, well, so what for you is the difference between doing stand up now, being on the road doing stand up now versus shoulder pad wearing a Paul Reiser double breasted <laughs> suit jacket guy that well, will. One, one big difference is the shoulder pads. <laughs> uh, that's going to be gone. The ties are fatter. I don't wear a tie now. Um, you know what? Well, you know, I was never, now and even then when I was mainly doing stand up, I was never really a road warrior. I mean, I would go out and do. You know, a weekend or sometimes the gigs were Thursday to Sunday or something like that. But I was never one of these guys that went town to town and I was out for months. So it was always a very uh, a gentleman, gentlemanly pace. And um, I was never a fan of the of the <laughs> of the travel part. You know, George Carlin used to say, "I work for free, but you got to pay me to sit in the airport." <laughs> so, 
And, uh, <laughs> that was that's you know that's never the fun part. But the gigs are. Uh, um, I, if anything, truly, the big difference to me is it's, it's just a lot more fun now. Um, largely, or, or part, you know, partially because the audiences know me, so I'm not having to... Well, they knew me then, too, but I, in a different way. And, and if they're coming to see me and buying a ticket, there's a good chance they already like you. You know, and they're, 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 uh, they're of the same mind, and they're ready to be entertained and, and ready to, to enjoy whatever it is you have to offer. Um, but also... Uh, the other difference for me, well, there's two other differences. One is, as you get older, I find you you, uh, you get more comfortable with yourself, so you're just um, you're able to share more and dig a little deeper and and uh, be a little more truthful and and uh, introspective. Maybe it doesn't mean less funny, but you can go places that you wouldn't have gone because you've lived more. You have more things to talk about, and you've seen a, lot, a little bit more life. You know, a lot more life. And the other thing that I, I wouldn't have known going in is, you know, after not, I didn't do it for 20 years. And uh, in that time, I was doing a lot of TV and a lot of, uh, I, I wrote and produced a lot of stuff that I wasn't in, some pilots that didn't go, some shows that did go. And um, what I never realized is the, I love the uncomplicated uh, nature of stand-up that there's no meetings there's no network notes there's no you don't have to run it by anybody you don't have to wait for a pickup you don't have to adjust it you, you know, all the middlemen are cut out and um, so I was, you know I love the simplicity and it's not easy but it's simple it's just you standing and talking and then you go home and uh, I didn't think about I didn't know that, you know I didn't have anything to compare it to when first time around but going back the second time around I was oh this is delightful that's just me and them and then you know there's no test audience audience, they are the audience, and then we'll all go home. It's just, a, I really uh, relished the, the simplicity of it all. So, I mean, the simplicity of it all, it's funny that you bring that up because I'm watching the interactions that you're having on people with Twitter the last five or six days, and I almost want to make you an honorary Canadian for the number of times that you've said, I'm sorry to people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I think you're going to say because all the times I said go to Canada to watch the show. <laughs> well, but you know what? I, I, I'm not a big social media guy, and I, Twitter's the only thing I do, and I try not to read it because uh, it's just sort of soul-sapping. Sap, but, uh, you know, I do take it. You know, that's another thing I think that comes with age. You really appreciate uh, you know, we say audience. I mean, you can go crazy if you try and address everybody and talk to everybody who wants to talk to you, but those are actual individual people. So when somebody says, gee, I really love your show and I'd love to watch it, I feel badly. I go, yeah, well, of course, I, I feel badly. You know, and if you could come over to my house, I'll show you the DVD. I got a copy, but that's about <laughs> all I can suggest other than go to Canada. So, But, um, you know, and, and uh, sometimes people, <laughs> hopefully people go, oh, well, it's, I mean, I do notice that some people go, well, that's so nice that he responded, and thank you, and, and, uh, but I don't have anything else to offer. You know, so uh, it's, it's frustrating for me, too. You know, you make a show, and we're putting a lot of hours into this and a lot of heart and soul. So it's frustrating to be able to say, sorry, you can only watch it in these designated areas, and only if you have this particular television company. Well, and, and there's so many different streaming services now. I mean, in Canada, we don't get the show until January is when it premieres up here. Yeah, you know, it just gives it a time, a little while to simmer. It'll be better. Ex you know, <laughs> um, 
but for you, I mean, the, so so there's the whole flip side of, you know, let's yeah talk about the difference again between just doing stand-up where it's just you and you don't have a million meetings, and now you're in this new scenario or new revisited old scenario. Talk to me about the the being on the other side of the camera even I think more intensely with this version of Mad About You than you were before because I'm watching you field questions from people that are along the lines of you know how are we going to reconcile what happens in the new version of the series with what we saw in the series finale where it looks like Paul and Jamie got divorced and yada yada and all of these different things that are I assume going to roll out and be addressed what's that like for the guy on the other side of the camera as as you're watching what people are saying as you're because you're still in the middle of shooting right yeah you know uh it's not really that complicated <laughs> i mean uh, i mean one of the things that i we're really proud of and that i think the audiences that i just from the little responses that i've seen and you know it's only been available for a couple of days um but the the takeaway is oh Thank, it's really the same people, and it doesn't feel like, you know, we were never, listen, we never wanted to try and pretend, go back to 1993. We weren't trying to be 30-year-olds. The whole point was, we're going to come back. We took a 20-year-old, 20-year break to, to raise our kid, and, you know, just like happens in life, you suddenly have more time when your kid is out of the house, so you can do things like go back and talk to your friends, the people on the other side of the television. So it really is kind of organic. But we were, you know, it is a continuation, and the people, the response that we're getting overwhelmingly is, oh, it's really does feel like a continuation. They still have it. They're still the same people. They're still the same relationship. Whatever it is we liked about watching them, it's there even more so because they've just been in it and, and that much more connected. So the relation, and, and Helen and I have been, you know, great friends for the 20 years in between. It's not like we suddenly met on the set a few months ago. So uh, it is definitely looks like a relationship and a marriage that has uh, organically grown over these many years. And so the only really issue, you know, in the, we joked that in the finale, we part of the reason we showed the future is that so we would guarantee we would never have to come back. We wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't even be able to come back if we were tempted to. And uh, so that's why we showed the future. And we were very clear that we always wanted to show it's not all roses, even for a couple that seems to be, you know, so uh, in love and is even in the best of relationships, it's hard. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. So we wanted to show that even this relationship, like, oh, they're going to hit some skids, you know, and they're going to, oh, you know what, maybe we need a little bit of time alone. But invariably, they came back. So they were never divorced. A lot of people said, oh, you, you killed me because you got divorced. I said, did you watch the ending? We didn't get divorced. They said, the daughter explains, no, they got back together. They always got back together. And we, I don't think, I don't think we were specific. I think, you know, we could have been apart for a week or a month, uh, you know, or a couple of days. We, I don't think it was ever clear. Um, so that's the, the only hiccup that might somebody who's going to be meticulous about it might say, wait a second, this is only 18 years later, and it said in 2021 you were apart. So, well, we ain't there yet, so maybe those bumps are still in the future. Um, but we decided, we actually, would, when we first started planning to come back, we thought, well, why don't we pick it up right there? Let's, let's introduce them, and we see that everything's just like it is, but then we slowly reveal, oh, oh, they're not sleeping in the same house. Oh, then they're apart, and we're going to be organic and, and um, true to that and show that over the 12 episodes, we'd see them finally getting back together. And then the more we thought about it, the more and, and to a person, everyone we told that to, they said, don't, 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 don't do that. We don't want, don't, 
we don't want to see Paul and Jamie apart. We watch because we want to see them together. They can fight, but we want to see them together. And and we realized that was they were right. It's like let's let's show the relationship with all the bumps, but it's a show about being together. It's not about being apart. So. Um, so if anybody wants to take us to court, gee, it was 20 years later, and how come the kid's only 18? It's like, you know what? Sue me. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we took a little little uh, literary license there, and uh, that's really it. That's really it that, I, that I'm aware of. And sometimes you have to say, well, you know, you've got to bite the bullet. It's like if somebody's upset about that, God bless. But, so know, we, I'm... We, we, we wanted to make the show as, as, uh, as fun to watch as, as we could. So for Paul and Jamie, I mean, I've taught when I was a college professor teaching broadcasting students, I would tell them, and it's one of the reasons I love the gig I have now. I would literally tell them that the best radio morning shows in the world are at least loosely based on Mad About You because you've got (laughs) you've got a male lead and a female lead that are both funny they both they like each other and obviously care about each other deeply but they are also not afraid to give each other an elbow in the face um Mm -hmm. now was that dynamic with paul and jamie did people always wrap their arms around that and welcome that or did you ever get pushback because every once in a while they got harsh with each other no quite the contrary um you know, the goal from the beginning, here was the pitch, here was the pitch, when we, literally, when I, I took the, to the networks in 92, maybe 91 even, yeah, 91, before we even, yeah, so it was all of, somewhere, so it was second half of 91, went to the networks, and we said, here it is, I said, you know, you know when you're with your wife, and and you go to a party, and you're all having a good time, and then you say goodnight, and, and then you get into the car, and as soon as the car door closes, one of you goes, why did you say that? Why? Why, why would you do that? It's like, you know, or, or you talk, you badmouth the people you just left. But we said, once you close the car door, that's the show. It's with these two alone dealing with the rest of the world. And everybody got that. Everybody knows that moment and that dynamic. So uh, our goal was not to show the perfect couple, but to show a real couple. And, the, and overwhelmingly, the response from the, you know, and the show wasn't for everybody, which is I, was fine, which I anticipated you know, 20, 30 years ago. I said, this is not going to be for everybody, but for those who like it, it'll be good. And uh, to, to, to a person, the, the, the response we got all, most often was, oh, man, I'm so glad you guys had that. That was just like us. Whether it's something silly like, here's how you put on the toilet paper and replace it, dummy, or, or you know, why were you flirting? Or, and, and we even got, I'll tell you, the, the one time it got, we ever had a network pushback at all was the end of season four where... They almost split, and and he was flirting with an affair, and she was flirting with an affair, but not actual. And we ha- we had to dial it down because at first we said, well, do they both sleep with somebody? Or do they both almost sleep with somebody? Do they kid? And we kept dialing it down because well, ah, it's going to be unpleasant to see our favorite couple do it. But um, it was very, and we knew that from the beginning when Helen and I first spoke about the show, and you know, I was trying talk about you know when she read the script in 92 and said boy i really like this what would what would what would the shows be and so we talked it through and said well here are some of the meat beats that would come up and one that we had from the beginning was uh a when they have when they have a kid it's not going to come easy they're going to have a lot of trial and error and they're going to have some real stuff like uh uh, affairs or, or or the threat of an affair or jealousy whatever that that world has to be explored and so that, but we had to earn it. So we wouldn't do that in season one. We did it right in the middle in season four. 
at the end of season four. And in fact, it was very organic. It came out of the fact that they were having, because they were having trouble having the kids. So she was feeling less of a woman and I was feeling less of a man. And we were each looking for some validation elsewhere. Uh, and we were vulnerable. So it was really organic and thought through. But I remember my, one of my favorite notes ever when we said they're going to have an affair and the, net, the head of the network said, you can't do it. He called me. You can't do that. You're committing telecide. I, went, <laughs> I don't know what that is. What is tel- What? And uh, he said, you can't do it. I said, we said, asshole, we're not going to break up. We're going to maybe. I said, people are going to tune in to see what happens. And then, of course, when it was over, he actually wrote back and he said, maybe the best hour of television I've ever seen. I went, all right, thank you. Um, we, we were, you know, so, so there, there was, we always took it very um, seriously. We were very aware that people were invested in this relationship, and we were invested in that relationship. You know, we wanted it to be uh, um, the relationships that we want to have in real life. And um, the other thing was, in terms of taking an elbow, we never, we were very aware in the design of the show, it was never meant to be the odd couple. He's neat, she's sloppy, she's neurotic, he's uptight, you know, whatever. They alternate almost sometimes within minutes. You know, he's a little nutty on this and she's a little nutty on that. And when he's nutty on that, she has to be the voice of reason and vice versa. And that's kind of how most relationships are. It's like you're not all perfect and you're not all insane. You're all, you know, human and uh, open for change. So that was uh, that was always part of the thing. But but the other thing is. This is not a long answer. The other thing that we were have been vigilant about is that the, when they fought, or even when they tease, they always tease fair. And in, in conventional sitcom world, often uh, you'll see people just throw a zinger at somebody, and they'll stand there while the audience laughs, and then they'll continue. It's like, well, we're not going to do that. If, if one of us says something that has a little bite to it, the other one will go, Ow, you know, or is going to hit back. It's like, well, you, you don't just say that in life. Maybe in a sitcom you say that. And we always said, these people are not in a sitcom. They're in real life. It happens to be on a television show, but they themselves are not in a sitcom. They're in real life. So the difference between sitcom life and real life, I, I want to give you an example of how this plays Writers. out. Uh, well, th- yeah, but let me let me pick an example from your own world. Um one of the fans of your show, and it was she was a guest on my show. Her name is Dr. Linnell Schneeberg. She is a pediatric sleep specialist. She's a professor at Yale. Uh, she runs the sleep program at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And she and I were talking a couple of episodes of the podcast ago about the episode of Mad About You, and we both remember it like it happened yesterday. The episode where Paul and Jamie are curled up in the fetal position on the floor on the other yeah. side of the door while yeah. the baby is crying it out. Now, you yes, yeah, my, my favorite episode. That's yeah, one I of my and, one. and one of her favorites, too. Um, but you kind of sparked a national debate with that episode about the whole cry it out mentality and all that. Yeah. Did that go better in in your world than it did in Paul and Jamie's world? Uh, no, I mean, there are people, you know, in real life, people. Some people ascribe to that particular thing, and many people don't. You know, there's there's no there's a thousand baby books, you know, and there's a thousand answers, and and so there's no one right way to do anything. So, um, but again, by the way, the, the very first time Helen and I met, and I was saying, well, here's the kind of show I wanted to do, and I was trying to assure her that it wasn't going to be, you know. Her nightmare would be like, okay, he's the funny comedian and she's the wife who has to just <laughs> suck it up when he makes a joke. I said, no, that's not going to be the show. This is a two-person thing. And um, from the beginning, anyway, so but one of the first things we said, in addition to like things like the breakup, and I said, I, I want to do 
many, but certainly at least one show where it's one continuous take. And uh, I said, that's, that's just fun. It's like a play. It's like no camera cuts, no camera moves, one camera. And, and so that was from the very beginning we wanted to do that. But we never found a story that was interesting enough to sustain that. It's like, well, you know, yeah, we're good, and we're good enough to, like, we can talk for 23 minutes and sit in bed, but it becomes indulgent. What are they talking about? You know, and when we stumbled on that, we went, okay, there's a show. So now you have a clock. There's an actual organic, you know, in terms of script, script structure, you go, okay, you have a clock, you have a baby, you have a, something at stake, and you have to sit there. And so that was another thing. We checked off, did it. We finally did the one-shot show, which was the fun challenge of it. And the content was, to me, was almost secondary. It was a beautiful story, but to me the fun of it was, oh, we can't make a mistake. This is only one camera shooting. And you, if you walk out of frame or you lean too far, we got to start over. So it was a really a high-wire act, which was a lot of fun. But the story itself, uh, no, I, we didn't get a lot of feedback on that. I think people related to it. I mean, very strongly. People were like, oh, man, we did that. That we went through that. It's brutal. It's brutal when you hear your child cry. What is, if there even is one, the modern equivalent, as far as you're concerned, of sitting on the couch next to Johnny? <laughs> uh, I don't think there is one. I don't think there is one. You know, that was a special, unique uh, experience. You know, it, you know it, when we did the There's Johnny show available on Hulu. Um, <laughs> I, got to, I got to go back and delve into that world of watching uh, these 1972 clips of, uh, of The Tonight Show that I watched as a 15-year-old and 16-year-old, and, uh, whatever it was. And it, it was uh, striking to me how well I remember them. I haven't seen them in, whatever, 45, 50 years. And I remembered them because it was important, because you only, you know, Carson was Carson, and The Tonight Show was The Tonight Show, and you could only see these people in this way by staying up late. You couldn't even record it. So it, it was part of your life. And similarly for a comedian, that was the only gold standards. Yeah, it's good to be on Merv Griffin. It's good to be on whatever other show you get on, but the Johnny was Johnny. And it was a stamp of approval that was, it was clear. I mean, the first time I ever did Tonight Show, from then on, it's like, you know, it's like having an Academy Award winner with a little R, you know, or <laughs> the little trademark next to your name. It's like, oh, you've been on the Tonight Show. And I, I know, I remember that early on, I'd, I'd be, meet a stranger, and I'd say, oh, I'm a comedian. they go, have you been on the Tonight Show? It's like, because if you're not, you're not a comedian. <laughs> that was it. So, to to get on the show was a huge, uh, huge cookie and a huge, uh, you know, victory. And then to get to be on the couch and play with Johnny, and I was really lucky. I only did straight stand-up once, my very first time. Didn't do it for a few years, and then from then on, uh, I sat, came straight to the couch. And I was, and I did it a lot. I, I, I kind of didn't even, I don't know if I realized at the time. I was on, there was a period, about two years, I was on, seemed like every six, eight weeks, which is crazy. Uh, and I was really lucky Johnny took a liking to me. And, 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 and I, if you watch them, they're, they're, you know, I can see myself loosen up and become more comfortable with the fact that I wasn't staring at the sun. It was like, at first I was sort of enamored. like, oh my God, it's Johnny Carson. And then, oh, we're just having fun here. He's just a really great uh, <laughs> host. Um, so yeah, there was nothing like it. I don't think there will be because, you know, there's no, we're never again going to go back to that time where one show is as important as, uh, as that one was.
Paul, I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. You bet. Right, and uh, on behalf of Canadians, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Paul Reiser from Mad About You, his co-star on the show, Helen Hunt, coming up seconds from now um, in, a, in a conversation that I had with her the very next day. We cover off a lot of the same information in this conversation as well, but it's fascinating to get her perspective on it as well. I start by asking her about Paul's reference to the initial conversation that the two of them had, the very first talk where they laid out the idea that this was not going to just be another show with the funny husband and the doting wife who thought that everything the husband said was hilarious. Well, I, when I met him, I had worked in television for a long time and was starting to get work in movies and at that time if you did television it was harder to get a movie not easier now now it helps um and i had just started to make a few movies and then i and i knew his stand-up i loved it but i guess i just sort of assumed it would be the part of his wife you know um it'd be a story about him and then maybe his wife because so many pieces of writing were that and by the way still are that when i go to the movies anyway and um, and instead, what landed on the door was a beautifully written script. Um, her part was every bit as interesting as his part. Um, it wasn't done with a big broad brush, like he's the neurotic one and she's the stable one. It seemed to go back and forth all the time. All those things were really fresh, and it suddenly didn't matter at all the size of the screen because, you know, terrific parts don't come along very often. It, it just right right away seemed like a part I was very very right for and and then he and I got together after that and started talking about what we want the show to be and it 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 lined up perfectly from the very beginning and it still 150 years later lines up so that's a pretty rare thing thank God I was smart enough to say yes please um, because it's been you know obviously one of the great jobs of my whole career. So when you talk about the state of that dynamic between a lot of the male characters in both TV and movies and the female characters where there is, there's the funny husband and the, and the doting wife who thinks he's hilarious. Now that you're doing so much directing work, not the least of which is the first episode of the new Mad About You, are you getting to effect change in that area the way that you maybe wanted to? Well, I mean, the way you affect change in content is by writing. And I wrote two movies and they're both, you know, the central characters are women. And so, you know, I have my own small way to affect change with what I wrote. In terms of what I've been directing, um, the content that either has come my way or that I've been drawn to is very female-driven. Ryan Murphy's work always um, celebrates. 360 degrees of diversity. I did the feud Betty and Joan thing and the politician is great parts for every, every kind of person. And that's, you know, one of the many, many contributions he's made is just this radical commitment to diversity. And I've, you know, so I, that's maybe why I've been drawn to direct his material. Mad About You obviously is about, you know, 50% of the center of the show is a woman and we've got wonderful female characters now more than ever. So, so it's probably some combination of what people think I would like and, and what I choose based on what's offered to me. 
it's, it seems like the show has been in my orbit for quite some time because not only was I a huge fan of the original series, um, I had, when I became a college professor teaching young broadcasters, I would cite Mad About You as a show after which I think, and still maintain to this day, that most successful either radio or TV morning shows are at least loosely patterned after because of that dynamic with Paul and Jamie where you've got two people who obviously like and love and respect each other but also aren't afraid to give each other an elbow in the face from time to time. Um, is that dynamic easy to, to play through? Is that is Does that take work with the two of you or is it just one of those it's chemistry and you can't teach that? I think it's the latter. I mean – you know, we just get along beautifully. We, I mean, even the today in rehearsal, this morning in rehearsal, we've had the same notes about the same lines with the same suggested solutions. So um, it's just a strange thing that I'm super grateful for, but I can only take a little bit of responsibility for it. You know, what happens when two people get together and he and I seem to have met in this strange, small universe, but that's, you know, big to me and my work. And I'm just so grateful for it. I'm grateful to be working with someone that I adore, care about so much. I'm grateful to be working with someone who's funny and not funny at anyone's expense. I'm grateful to have a like-minded partner so I don't have to make all the decisions. Um, and now we have Peter Tolan, so the, you know, the duet is a triangle and really nothing gets decided without all three of us weighing in, a blouse on an actor or a story beat or a line of dialogue or anything um it's all runs through the three of us and nobody we haven't yet made a decision that one of us didn't like perhaps i think one of the great examples of how amazing the two of you are together from a fan's perspective but paul also confirmed this when he and i were chatting yesterday we talked about and this is another reason that especially in my current life where I talk about, you know, insomnia for 30 years uh, and, and how important sleep is for people. Um, my all-time favorite episode of the show, my, the all-time favorite episode of uh, a, a pediatric sleep specialist at Yale, uh, it's her favorite mm -hmm. episode in history, is the one where you and Paul are sitting on the other side of Mabel's door agonizing over the weather, let her cry herself to sleep. Um, yeah. talk to me about your recollections of, of the shooting and the making of that episode and the national debate kind of that it sparked after with people going either strongly for, well, you can't do that or strongly for, yeah, of course you can do that. I think that debate was already raging. That's how we got the episode. But my best girlfriend, um, at that time had a baby. I was um, the godmother. And they were struggling over what to do. And there was this idea that you let them cry and that's how they learn to self-soothe. And there's another theory that says, don't be ridiculous, get in there. And um, we thought that seemed like exactly the kind of thing we like to write about. And I think there had always been an aspiration to do an episode that would be one shot. I mean, it's, it's not just one take, it's one camera, one shot. And that just seemed like the perfect thing to do together. And, um, and my dad directed it. Um, and thank God we had him because we got to work and I was, we're used to having, you know, 10, 15 people at the table read and scenes, you know, now we're going to work on the A scene with John Panko and Richard Kind. And this was just the two of us for 23 minutes and we felt really daunted and he broke it down into little parts and it was 
And it was pretty wild to know that if at minute 21 you forgot your line, the whole thing goes in the trash. But it was the first take that we used, and it was a very special thing for us. And it was about something. It was about something we knew people struggled with that we were both about to struggle with in our own lives. Um, so it was exciting. It was exciting. And, and the show has always been, for me, um, exciting in its, in, in its smallness. Uh, it isn't about a million characters and the wacky things that happened to them, except rarely. Most, mostly our aspiration before we even started shooting was instead of making it bigger and bigger when we start running out of stories, can we make it smaller and smaller? So we had an episode that they're locked in the bathroom. We had this one shot in the hallway. Um, it seemed like if we, we told ourselves to get smaller rather than bigger, something interesting might happen. Uh, you and I are not of entirely dissimilar vintage. Let's put it that way. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so I, I'm interested with the number of my friends who are, in that empty nest place, the same as Paul and Jamie are. Uh, and, and there are so many of us now that are in that position. One of the great things about Paul and Jamie Buckman was I felt like the original version of the series, it gave people hope in that here were two people who loved each other but got into some pretty serious scraps from time to time and yet came out of it still loving and respecting each other. Do you do you get a sense that this couple that has been occasionally described as America's favorite all-time sitcom couple, do you feel like there's still sort of that hope uh, with Paul and Jamie in, in the new incarnation? Yeah, the first six have, have aired here so far, and in the second six, they, they get into a... They wander and don't even know it's coming into a pretty big, painful moment and then have to spend the rest of the episode um, stitching it back together and finding a new way to be now that their daughter's gone. So... So we, you know, and everything on this show, it's always a fine line. It's got, it's got to be funny or who cares and why are we watching? It's got to be real enough that an audience um, doesn't feel messed with and feels like they're seen. Um, you know, they used to say on comedies or television series, when there'd be a big serious show, it was a very special mad about you. And Paul knows I have a huge allergy to that. So um, we tried to avoid that, but. Paul wrote and performed a pretty terrific scene coming up in something like the seventh or eighth episode that um, that really did let them hit a new kind of skid because of what it means to have the person you've been so devoted to leave. I'm I'm excited for um, I, and I'm hypersensitive to your time, so I'll just tell you that I'm I'm super okay. excited for the for the moment that uh, the distribution thing gets ironed out. Yes, all of us are. I'm sure Paul told you. Yes, yes. We're so grateful that Charter made our show and we're super excited for even more people to see it, which will happen, I feel quite sure. Yeah, when we talked about it yesterday, I said, I I hope the distribution gets fixed if for no, no other reason than as I'm watching his Twitter feed lately. I know, he just keeps apologizing. Yeah, I want to make him an honorary Canadian for the number of times he said, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. I don't know how soon, but it's definitely going to come. And we're really, like I said, grateful that this uh, network believed in us and um, made the show and also really excited for when more people can see it. Helen Hunt 
from Mad About You. And thanks to both Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt. Um, again, show is already on the air in certain markets in the United States. Premieres in Canada in January. And we're looking forward to seeing all kinds of great things. I hope it goes far beyond this first uh, dozen episodes that everybody's talking about. But before we wrap up on this week's episode of the Snooze Button podcast, I want to revisit an interview that we did with Dr. Linnell Schneeberg. She is a professor at Yale. She's also the director of the sleep clinic at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. We were reminiscing about the episode we talked about earlier of Mad About You, where Paul and Jamie are letting baby Mabel cry it out through the other side of the door. And we talked about the whole concept of crying it out and what her thoughts as a pediatric sleep specialist are. Right. That's that's such a common question. And for me, I always tell the families that I work with, it's definitely a personal choice. The main goal, whether you do cry it out or what are called um, controlled checking, you know, where you check every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every 15 minutes, your real goal is to separate your child's need for you to be able to fall asleep. So for most babies, of course, it's being bottle fed or breastfed to sleep. And you can work on that without doing any cry it out. For example, you could feed your child at around bedtime and then you could make sure that they're awake again by maybe changing their diaper, walking them around the room and saying goodnight to the various animals in the room, the stuffed animals, and then putting them in to the crib and letting them finish the job of falling, you know, going from wake to sleep. You know, they'll say drowsy, but awake, right? That's the phrase they use. And many times kids won't stay drowsy. They'll wake up and basically let you know they want more than that. But you could sit nearby just providing your quiet presence while they're figuring out how to do that. Or you could go completely out of the room and wait again, five minutes, then 10 minutes, then 15. Some parents believe it's better to go out and wait and give them quite a bit of time to figure it out. So it's really a personal preference, but most parents end up wanting at some point to help their kids learn how to do that independently. And there are multiple ways to get there. There you go. Dr. Linnell Schneeberg from Yale and Connecticut Children's Medical Center, uh, helping to prop up the sleep cred of this week's episode 14. A reminder that uh, on next week's show, giveaways. We're giving away a copy of Dr. Guy Leschziner's The Nocturnal Brain and a copy of Yoga for the Inflexible Male by our friend Roy Parvin, writing as Yoga Matt. Details on how to win the books coming up at the very beginning of next week's episode 15 here on the Snooze Button Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please, by all means, pass on a link to a friend because after all, there are 100 million of us in North America who are having some kind of a struggle with sleep. And that's what we're here for is to try and help. We want to do that for as many people as we possibly can. We'd also love it if you'd rate us on whatever your podcast app is, if that's an option that's available to you, or leave a review too. That would be most helpful. In the meantime, though, I'll see you back here next Monday for another episode of the Snooze Button Podcast. In the meantime, hey, get some sleep, would you?